This is the Ogilvy Podcast. I'm Chris Saletti. Thanks to our partnership with Intelligence Squared, today we're thrilled to be able to bring you a great conversation featuring two inspiring women who have faced incredible adversity in their lives and fought through it. Malala Yousafzai is an advocate for women's education and the youngest ever winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. Earlier this year, Malala shared the Intelligence Squared stage with Facebook COO and author of the book Option B, Sheryl Sandberg, as well as her co-author on the book, Adam Grant. The conversation focused on how we can help others persevere through devastating events and find deeper meaning in our work, education, and our lives. So without further ado, here's Adam Grant, Sheryl Sandberg, and Malala Yousafzai. Well, what a treat. Welcome, everyone. We're so thrilled to have you all here. And it's such an honor to share the stage with not only two of the most extraordinary women on the planet, but two of the leaders that I admire most. We're so glad to be able to do this. And I think the great place to start is that the two of you actually have a relationship. And Malala, I was curious about how you met and what your connection with Cheryl is. Uh, so I think, uh, first of all, thank you so much to all of you for such a warm welcome, and I'm really excited to talk today. Um, I met Cheryl, I think, in 2014, and it was in relation to, I think, our film, my film, he named me Malala, and we had a talk about that on Facebook Live, and then I went to Facebook office, we met Lean-In uh, group members, and uh, we met Mark Zuckerberg as well. And as soon as I entered the room, my father said, oh, who's he? And then <laughs> my father's sitting right there. So then we say, oh, he's Mark Zuckerberg. And uh, it was great event. And then we went to Cheryl's house. And it just, we started building up that family, that friendship. And we still have it. And we treasure it. And we are thankful for it. So I got to interview Malala on Facebook and then invite her and her father and her mother and her brothers uh, to my home for dinner. And they are um, one of those families that just seems so remarkable from afar. You can't imagine they could be even better up close, but they are. They are warm and loving and giving and have been a real source of friendship uh, for me and my children. I feel very lucky. So we're here to talk about option B tonight. And Cheryl, I'd love for you to just share with us what option B means in your life. So the name of the book that Adam and I wrote together uh, comes from something that happened just a few weeks after I lost my husband suddenly. I um, was talking to my friend Phil about a father-son activity we ha I had signed my son up for and I needed someone to fill in. And we came up with an idea my brother-in-law, Rob, Dave's brother, to fill in. But I said to Phil, you know, I don't want that. I want, I want Dave. I want Dave to go do this with our son. And Phil said, well, option A is not available, so let's kick the out of option B. And what was powerful about what he said was that he didn't say, you're going to go live option B. He said, we. It was, we are going to kick the not cursing in the presence of, you know, but we are going to kick, kick, kick option B. And it was, it was that understanding that we all live some form of option B. I mean, sometimes it's true trauma where you lose your country and your life as you know it, like Malala has been through. Sometimes it's the kind of trauma of losing someone suddenly or not suddenly in your life. Sometimes it can be something small, but no one's life is exactly as they planned it. And at some level, we all live option B. Malala, you wrote something beautiful about the book. You were so kind to read it. And you said that none of us can escape sadness, loss, or life's disappointments. So the best option is to find our option B. Can you tell us what option B means to you and, and how you found it? So um, when I was attacked, I woke up in a, in a hospital in Birmingham. And all I remembered was that I was on my way uh, home from school and I was with my friends enjoying my time and suddenly I'm in this country people are speaking English and I'm in this hospital and what has happened to me uh, and I realized that yes I had been attacked and something had happened to me and that I was no longer with my family and my family was still in Pakistan and it was a really difficult time but for me the most important thing at that time was patience 
and to stay calm and to be hopeful about my future and to know that everything will be good. And then soon my family arrived and I got back together with my family and I started my life again in a sense. And it was, for me, it was like a new life. So um, accepting myself after that attack, who I am, and being thankful for the family I have got, being thankful for all the friends I have, uh, to me was the best way to fight against what I had been through and that was my option B. It's amazing. I think, you know, when we think about resilience, when we started reading resilience research, it was actually done on people in the worst of circumstances, going through war and poverty and abuse. And it's amazing how widely this research applied. And Cheryl, that was one of the first things that we started talking about. And that theme of gratitude was really relevant to your life, life too. So after I lost Dave, just a few weeks later, Adam said to me one day, long before we were working on a book, he said, you should think about what could be worse. And I know that things can be worse. I haven't lived through what Malala's lived through. But you know, when your husband dies suddenly, no, few people say to you, you should think about what could be worse. Most people are trying to cheer you up. Sorry. And, and I would have thought if you're trying to escape from deep grief, if you're trying to get through, you know, what is the major overwhelming grief and sadness, you should think about positive thoughts. So I looked at Adam like he was, you know, absolutely not thinking at all. And he's one of the most brilliant people I ever met. And he said, no, I mean it. He said, Dave could have had that same cardiac arrhythmia driving your children. And it had never occurred to me. And absolutely, I could have lost all three of them in that same split second. And the minute he said it, I did. I felt better. I thought to myself, okay, my kids are alive. I'm okay. And counterintuitively, whenever we face something that's really hard, and it can be hard, and it can be overwhelming, thinking about what could be worse helps us find gratitude for that which we took it really for granted before. And one of the major lessons for me in building resilience, how we build it in ourselves and each other, is finding gratitude for even the most basic things like the fact that my children were alive, something I never really thought to be grateful of, for, grateful for before. Malala, you've, you've had a huge impact on us in many ways. One of them is um, actually teaching us how to practice, practice gratitude every day. And I wonder if you could just share with us how you found that sense of appreciation. Um, well, I think uh, having a great family and uh, they, that kept me normal. And I have two brothers that are younger than me. And um, we are like normal brothers and sisters. And we fight and we argue. And, uh, and, I'm, and I was just, well, when I am in fight with them, I'm quite serious. But then later on, I think, and I'm grateful that I have them because they remind me that I'm a normal sister and uh, they keep my life busy in those things. Uh, but also the support that I have received from people growth, from all over the world. Like the letters and I, received, I think this speaks to something that received, um, Julia Samuel here in the UK has written like so eloquently about on grief. She says that pain is the agent of change. And I think that's, that's something that we can all relate to. But could you talk to us a little bit about what that means? Well, let me ask the audience, who here has heard of post-traumatic stress or PTSD? Everyone, and that's important because this is a very real problem and not one we deal with well enough. We need to do better. Who's heard of post-traumatic growth? Yeah, so you look at the difference. Now, again, post-traumatic stress is a really important problem that we need to do better dealing with. Many more people will experience post-traumatic growth and post-traumatic stress. And post-traumatic growth means that from the hardest things in our lives, we learn, we grow. Our lives become deeper, more meaningful. We find more purpose. We form deeper relationships. We, we form deeper relationships. We are more grateful. And you wouldn't want to go through that to find the post-traumatic growth at all. I would give all of the growth I've had back to give Dave back, to get Dave back. I don't want to have grown this way, but I have and we do. And that's a pretty incredible thing there's an amazing group of people here with us today. I had a chance to meet with right before I came. I went to an, visit an organization called Drive Forward. They work with, uh, with young adults who are coming out of the care system, so care leavers. People are in what we call foster care, what you call care, until they're 18. And then they're young adults and they are on their own with no institutional or no, I'm sorry, government support. And that's pretty pretty hard place to be. There are 70,000 
kids in the care system in the United Kingdom. 2,000 will come out every year in London alone. 40% of those young adults will wind up homeless within the first six months because they don't have the support they need. And so these amazing people I just had the chance to meet with told unbelievable stories of post-traumatic growth. One is a young man who said that he grew up with severe violence in his home, so severe that he had to leave and go into the care system by age six. And he said that he learned, even as a very young child, to kind of scan the room to see what was going on and understand the motives of the people around him. He went into the care system at six, went to university. He is now working as a mediator in Gaza. And he says that one of the reasons he thinks he's successful in his job is that he walks into a room and he understands people. He is reading people, looking for violence, looking for the people that will come to the table. The way he learned to and what was the truly traumatic situation of a childhood. And then another young woman who's also here shared a story of how she bears the scars on her body of the violence and trauma that she faced as a child. And that sometimes when she takes a shower and looks at her own body, she looks at those scars and thinks of what she's been through, but she's really taught herself to see those scars as the sign of resilience. And here's the most incredible part of the story. I asked them two hours ago when we were meeting in their office if I could share those stories. And they said yes, but then they said that they were worried that by sharing only two of the stories of this amazing group of people, it was somehow giving those two people more recognition than the others. So they were only comfortable with my sharing the stories if I found a way to recognize all of them. Unbelievable. So these young adults have come through unbelievable trauma, and they are not just building individual resilience, but they've formed a community that only wants to be recognized in the collective. And so it is like one of the big honors for me to ask these amazing young adults and Martha Waynesboro, who founded Drive Forward, to stand up and be recognized for the resilience they have and they share. One of the things Adam and I learned studying resilience for this book is that we don't just build it in ourselves, we build it in each other, and we build it in the collective. And it is organizations like Drive Forward that form communities like this that teach us what, what resilience is. So thank you to this group of people for teaching me and I think all of us so much today. We're gonna talk more about communities. Um, I, wanna, I wanna actually zoom in on the growth theme a little bit though. Um, Malala, you've talked about how special occasions are really important for finding growth and, and appreciating the things that you have in your life. And I thought your mother did something profound on your birthday. Can you talk to us about that? So um, since they take on me, uh, whenever my birthday comes, which is the 12th of July, my mother, she writes a card to me and. Uh, she has been writing like happy first birthday and last year when I turned 19 she wrote to me happy fourth birthday Malala because four years had been passed since that attack. So uh, to her I am growing again after that attack and for her this is a completely new life of her daughter. So she is uh, very grateful, she really believes in prayers, she is a very, uh, she follows religion Islam very deeply and she prays for me every night, every morning and that is something that gives me strength every day when I come out of house, when I go out to events and everything, when I do my exams as well, uh, <laughs> to know that my mother is there, she's praying for me and that will keep me safe. So that is something that gives me strength every day. And Cheryl, you've, um, you've also had a lot of people in your life talk about the importance of birthdays in appreciation and resilience. And for me, so before I lost Dave, I really celebrated birthdays like the zeros and the fives. And you know, I work for someone who's 15 years younger than I am, so my best jokes are about being old, right? So raise your hand if you've joked about getting old. Oh, see? Oh, I'm getting old. Okay, more of you raise your hands. You're lying. Go ahead. Let's be honest. <laughs> I will never, ever make another joke about growing old again, ever. A few months ago, my cousin turned 50, and I called her that morning, and I said, Laura, happy birthday. 
I'm calling to wish you a happy birthday, but I'm also calling in case you woke up with that, oh my God, I'm 50 thing today. Because this is the year that Dave doesn't turn 50. And he never will. And it turns out that there's really only two paths. We either grow older or we don't. And so I will never joke about growing old again because it's a gift. And it's not one that I will take for granted again. Adam and I have talked a lot about post-traumatic growth We believe in pre-traumatic growth, that people can have the growth without the trauma. I wish I could go back and live one day with Dave with the appreciation I would have for that day now, but I can't. But I can live today with the appreciation to be on the stage with these amazing people, to have Ariana and Isabella with me today, to have Gail, my amazing UK publisher and friend here. I can appreciate these moments. And so can all of you. Because even if you haven't been through the trauma, you can appreciate growing old in a way we might not have thought of before. And Cheryl, when when you started talking with people about who you had become, you noticed that there was silence a lot. And you wrote a whole Facebook post about that. What, What happened? After I lost Dave, it wasn't just the grief. It was actually an increasing feeling of isolation. You know, before this happened, I would drop my kids off at school and everyone would say hi. You know, then I would go to work and Facebook's a very chatty, friendly place, everyone would talk. But after I lost Dave, not so much. People looked at me as if I was a ghost. And I know I'm not the only person who's been through something hard here, obviously. So many people, not just us on the stage, but so many people have. And all of these real uh, hardships in our lives, they actually usher this huge elephant into a room. Do you want to completely silence a room? Say you just got diagnosed with cancer. Silence. Say your father just went to jail. You just lost your job. You just lost your child. These are the moments when we need each other the most, but we talk the least. And I understand that because before I lost Dave, if someone in my life was going through something hard, I would say maybe one time, you know, I'm so sorry. But then I wouldn't bring it up again because I didn't want to remind them. Hmm. You know, it's been over two years. If you walk up to me and say, I'm so sorry for your loss, I don't think, damn, I forgot. (laughs) How could you remind me? (laughs) Right? And I promise you're not going to remind the person you're sitting next to in your office that she has cancer. She knows. So that respectful silence we do, which sometimes is important, doesn't work as often as we think it should. And we're not there for each other in the moments we should be. One of the goals Adam and I had, writing option B, and I had working with Rachel Thomas, the president of my foundation who's here, forming the option B community, is to kick a lot of elephants out of a lot of rooms so that we can be there for each other when we need each other the most. Malala, your presence has that effect all around the world. Um, You go giving people opportunity. You also go to give them hope. What do you say to people who are suffering as you go and visit them? So I have visited many refugee camps through the Malala Fund work, and I have been to Nigeria where I met the girls who escaped from the abduction by Boko Haram. I met some of the parents who had lost their daughters. I went to Jordan and Lebanon, and I met so many families who were refugees and girls who were living in these refugee camps, but still dreaming that one day they would see peace. Um, And I went to Rwanda, I went to Kenya, and I met amazing and incredible girls. And uh, in one of these uh, camps, there were Burundi refugees, and uh, we were sitting in in a gathering of these refugee girls, and there were lots of people, and then these girls said that, now I only want to talk to the girls in, the crowd, um, in this gathering, and all the men should go out. So all the men went out, and they said, okay, Malala's father can stay. So they let my father stay, and they started sharing their stories. And one girl, she stood up and she shared how, how she lost her home, how she had to go through all these conflicts in her country, uh, in her country Burundi, and how they have become refugees, but uh, worst of all, that how her friend uh, became victim of sexual violence and that she herself became a mother. She gave birth to a child when she was still in school. A school girl had to go through all these sufferings. And when you hear these stories, but when you see this strength while they're sharing their stories, that encourages you, that empowers you. So what keeps me going is their stories, is their strength, and they're standing up 
they're not losing hope. They said that they want to get education, that they want to bring change in their, in their community, that they are going to be resilient, they're going to, that they are going to stand against any harm that they are facing in society. So I think that is what is keeping me strong, but also that whole community strong. And I think that's the most powerful thing that I hear from these people who I meet. Yeah. Amazing. I have to say there's something that I'm not grateful for, which is we've all written books. And if you walk into a bookstore, you'll notice that there's a huge self-help section. And those of you who spend time in America know that's basically the entire bookstore. <laughs> um, it's better here in London. But I would love to see bookstores create a help others section. And I think that that's so much of building resilience is knowing not just how we get through our own hardships, but also how do we show up for others? How can we be there to support other people who are suffering? And I would, be, I would just love to hear from both of you about what we can all do to be better family members, better friends, better colleagues, and really support the people we care about in our lives who are struggling. I think uh, there are so many ways, and I think there's no uh, one like mathematical answer. Um, the first thing is to talk to people is to know them, is to talk to them, is to share their, to listen to their stories and share your stories. And I think this is how you realize that you have the same stories and uh, you all have the same feelings and you are there to support each other, to help each other. And, uh, and I think this is something that makes you feel like you're not the only one and there are people there who care about you and who support you. So I think talking to people and supporting people is just so important, but, um, and also being, uh, you yourself have to be stronger as well to know that hardships come in everyone's life. And it is, in a sense, a test for us to show our patience, to show our courage, to show our strength, and to show that we can go through any hurdle in our life. It would take time. We need to be patient. And that one day we will see the sun, things will be okay, things will be better. In whatever, in whichever situation you are, feel the strongest feel the bravest and know that you are at the best of what you could be and, and things will get better. And that's how I lived all these years of my life that I thought things will be better, one day everything will be okay and, um, and I just stayed positive. One of the lessons you get from the researchers who study resilience is the importance of rejecting permanence rejecting permanence. So when things are truly awful, right, you're not going to be in the hospital forever. You're going to regain your memory. You know, for people who, when you have a death, and I know so many people in the audience have, it doesn't go away, and everyone grieves in their own time in their own way, but I sit here knowing that my worst of my days now are better than the best of my days right afterwards. Because Time doesn't heal everything. Time doesn't heal completely, but time does heal. Adam and I have talked a lot about how we want the self, you know, the help others section of bookstores. And one of the things I learned was the importance of doing something specific. So one of the other think, mistakes I used to make is that when someone was going through something hard in my life, I would offer to, you know, is there anything I can do? That's a very common thing to say, is there anything I can do? And I meant it kindly, but the problem was, when I was on the other side of that question, I didn't really know how to answer. Well, can you make Father's Day go away so I don't have to live through it? And that question kind of shifts the burden to the person who's in need to answer the question. And so rather than offer to do anything, do something, even if it's imperfect. My friend, my dear friend Dan and Esther Levy, they lost a child very tragically, and they were in the hospital in California for months. And one of his friends texted and from the lobby of the hospital and said she was downstairs in the, hosp the hospital lobby for a hug for the next hour, whether he came down or not. She just showed up. And then a friend of mine read that story in our book. And she had a friend, not a close friend, who went to the hospital with her daughter. Her four-year-old daughter had leukemia. And she said before she read the story in option B, she never would have invaded their space and shown up at a hospital. It's not her best friend. Who is she to show up? But she read the story in the book, so she went to the toy store, she bought a stuffed giraffe, she went to the lobby of the hospital, she texted, I'm here with a toy, I could just send it up. And the woman right away said, please come up. So she went upstairs, 
and the four-year-old opened the toy and the mother is standing behind her just crying, mouthing the words, thank you for being here. And the whole hour she was there, no one else came. I think we're too often afraid to say the wrong thing, or at least I was, so we don't say anything. We're too often afraid to do the wrong thing, so we ask open-ended questions, what can I do and don't do anything, show up. Show up, text someone from the lobby of a hospital, and it doesn't have to be your best friend from the first grade because we don't have enough of those. And show up, and I think this will make just an enormous difference. Malala, can you talk to us at all about, about how you come to terms with allowing other people to help you and support you? Um, I'm, like, I'm not sure about the culture here, but in Pakistan, if something happens in your house, you really expect everyone to come to your house and be with you and support you. If they don't come up, you might. Bravo. <laughs> Woo! So I think it depends on the culture as well. So I'm like really grateful of this culture in Pakistan that you have to be there, you have to give support. And it is just a social responsibility that you have. That if this, you wouldn't even know the person, but it would, they would say, oh, I'm so and your brothers and sisters and their friend and something, and they would just come. And they would say, oh, I just belong to your village, and they would come. So this idea of being with people, being there to celebrate their joy, and then being there to be with them, to cry with them in their grief, is, is very important in our culture. So our, we, in a sense, were expecting people to come to us and be with us. And, uh, and I just really was grateful that people uh, came to me, supported me, and stood up with me. And, um, and I think that's what made me feel like, because once people start coming to you, once they start talking to you, things feel a bit normal. Your mind starts focusing on different things. Uh, but if you are just all on your own, then your mind is focused on that one tragedy and that one incident. And it's not just about tragedies, it's about everything in life. Like, for example, my exams right now. And I am just like, for these past days, I have I've just been thinking about my papers, how I have done. I think I did that question wrong, and I think I should have written this instead of that, and things like this. And I've been thinking a lot uh, to the extent that I have these spots on my face because of stress, um, <laughs> which I, I just didn't want to develop for this event, but I just couldn't control it because it's stress. Uh, but then I realized that you just can't control it. It is a stressful time and you have to accept it and you have to go through it. And I think that's the thing that you have to, uh, you have to accept these things and then try to talk to people. So I talk to my friends and they say, yeah, it's stressful. And then we all enjoy because we all think it was stressful and the papers were hard. So I think just talking to people and sharing whatever feelings you have makes it a bit easier. You've both spoken about joy and the importance of finding joy even after we go through terrible things. Um, why is that so important and, and how do we find it? Cheryl, start with you. I think the first time I felt happy um, after Dave died absolutely took me by surprise. I went to a, a friend's bar mitzvah their child and a childhood friend put me on the took me on the dance floor and I danced to this old song and it was about four months after Dave I lost Dave and all of a sudden I just kind of broke down and had to be like taken outside it was super embarrassing and I didn't know exactly what was wrong and then I realized what was wrong because it felt different I realized I felt okay for like one minute on a dance floor and then I thought to myself what am I doing on a dance floor when Dave is gone like how dare I be dancing and right around then, my brother-in-law, Rob, did something super generous, which he called me, and he said, all Dave ever wanted was for you and your children to be happy. Don't take that away from him in death. And what I learned working with Adam on this book is that joy is something we can't take for granted and often we have to work on and something we do not understand. So probably the best suggestion that's ever been made to me in my life, Adam made to me, after Dave died, which we make to all of you today, which is write down three moments of joy at the end of the day. So I now have a little blue notebook by my bed, and I write down three moments of joy at the end of every day. And what I realized is that before this, I went to bed every night worried about what I did wrong, every night, and worrying about what would go wrong the next day, my next exam, my next thing at work, whatever it was. But because I'm going to write down three moments of joy, and they can be small things, you know, my coffee tasted good. My daughter gave me a hug without being asked. Hinted at, but not directly asked. 
I pay attention to those moments. They become more my focus, both in the moment and at the end of the day. So no matter what you're going through, there are three moments of joy. Write them down. I think it's changed my life. Malala, what brings you joy, and, and do you have to work at it, or does it come naturally? I think um, I had noticed that sometimes we consider happiness and joy a very special moment, and that there's a lot of excitement, and for example, like a party, or you go on a trip, and there's something happening. And then now I have realized that as long as like, there is nothing tragic happening, <laughs> there is joy. And as long as there's nothing really scary, there is joy, there is happiness. And I take normal moments of my everyday as happiness and as joy, like sitting on the table, having breakfast in the, in the morning. I just feel grateful that I, have, I see all my family members together and that we all are together, we are happy. So we do argue, my brothers and me, on the table, but still like I'm happy and I'm grateful. And then I come, I go to school, and I'm grateful that, yes, I can go to school, and I'm enjoying, and I'm learning. Though there's a stress of exam, there are tests, there is homework, then I come home, and then I'm with my parents, we eat, we, we talk, we watch TV, we go out, things like that. And I think all these things are happy moments, and sometimes we want, we want to define happiness as something really bigger, but I think uh, what you have right now this is the happy moment, this is the joy which you should appreciate, which you, which you should be thankful for, and I just don't expect anything bigger to be my happiness. I take whatever I have as my happiness and just am thankful for this. One of the things I find most inspiring about both of you is you not only find joy helping others, but you've also taught me that you build resilience through helping others, that you know, it doesn't just make you happy, it actually gives you strength. Um, and I think that you know, it's, it's amazing that you come from such different walks of life and such different worlds, um, you know, culturally, geographically, religiously, and yet you share this common passion for helping women and girls advance. And I want to talk a little bit about what we can do to build a world that's more fair and more equal, because we are very far from that today. And Malala, I'll start with you. Um, what can we do to give girls real opportunity, and what have you learned through your work with the Malala Fund to give every girl access to education? So I think it is sharing that responsibility that we have to do something and I think making sure that we, held, uh, we hold our governments responsible, that we keep on reminding them that they need to invest more in education, that they need to more invest in what benefits society, what is good for the society. And also to, to do and to contribute from our side, whether, uh, whether that's believing in education, that you invest in education, NGOs or funds, or whether you help someone in your community who doesn't have enough resources, um, and unfortunately, poverty is all across the world. It's not just in the developing world, but even in the UK, in the US. So helping as many people as you can, whether that is through raising your voice, through supporting them, through your donations, whether that is joining a campaign, anything you do really matters. Even if it's just giving a smile, that is a lot to many people. And Cheryl, you, you started your career working on girls' education at the World Bank. What do you think needs to change in order to educate girls all around the world? Well, all over the world, uh, but particularly in, in some parts of the developing world, girls are just not invested in the way boys are, and they're not expected to have the same opportunities uh, boys are. And there are deep uh, reasons for all of this, none of which are acceptable. It's completely unacceptable that a young girl is not given the same health care as a young boy. That the rate of mortality for under five for female babies is so much higher in some parts of the world than for boys. It's unacceptable that, you know, that there are families in which girls get ac boys get access to health care, boys get access to education. And it's incumbent upon all of us to make sure we change that. And my, my economist friend, Lant Pritchett, has written a very important book on not just providing education, but providing the quality of education where students can learn. And everyone has dreams and everyone deserves an opportunity to make the most of their lives. And without an education, we can't do that. And I think we all have the responsibility 
to support the work that Malala and others are doing and know that these global problems, these are our problems too. One of the things we've learned in the, the developed world is that now we have a lot of countries where girls are outperforming boys in schools, and yet they still don't have equal access to leadership opportunities. And Cheryl, this has been a huge focus of your work with Lean In. What is it going to take to get more women leading? So I don't want to disappoint everyone or shock you, but it turns out that men still run the world. What? And I'm not sure it's going that well. <laughs> About 30 years ago in developed countries, the United States, the UK, lots of countries, women, more women started graduating from university than men. So it's been over 30 years. And for, for many decades, women's progress was steadily increasing in terms of getting the top leadership roles in every industry, nonprofits, for-profits, companies, government. And then about 12 years ago, that progress basically stopped. 11 women run countries. There are, women have 5% of what is the Fortune 500 CEO jobs in the United States, and the equivalent in this country in almost every country in the world, 5%. And so we know something is going on because they're getting equal education, but they're not getting to leadership roles. So I want to ask a question, men only in this audience, please. Raise your hand if anyone called you bossy as a little boy. Women, raise your hand if you were called bossy as a little girl. So, why is that? We know that boys are as aggressive or more when we do gender-blind studies of play and women in the, work, in the workplace, but we don't expect that. So this is, a cultural, this is a cultural stereotype that men should lead and women should be communal, and this is true all over the world. This is one culture we all share, no matter where you're from, country, religion, everyone believes that. But we can change it. So this weekend, go to a playground, find a little girl, wait five minutes for her to be called bossy, probably by her parents, walk right up to them and say, that little girl is not bossy. That little girl has executive leadership skills. <laughs> Bravo. I'm going to pause, and in Silicon Valley language, I'm going to double-click on that. I'm going to try that the other way. Ready? That little boy has executive leadership skills. No laughter. I can and have replicated exactly that response in audiences all over the world for five years. That's because a girl having executive leadership skills goes so against our expectations that it's funny. Humor is because it surprises us. That's the problem. And that's the one we strive to fix. I think there must be some women here who are in lean-in circles. There have to be. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. Rachel, you're in a lean-in circle. Stand up if you're in a lean-in circle. So uh, my foundation, when we published Lean In, we started circles all over. These incredible women are meeting together once a month to lean in together, to give themselves a place to be ambitious. We were hoping for 1,000 lean-in circles. We now have 33,000 everywhere in, all over the world in 150 countries, and I got a chance to meet with some of them yesterday. And what we know is that when women give themselves a place to be explicitly ambitious, it works. These women are getting raises, encouraging other women, aiming higher for things they want in their lives, whatever their ambitions are than we were before. And so, Thank you all so much because you inspire me. But whether it's in the form of circle, whether it's in the form of encouragement, we need to start encouraging girls to lead. And we need to start young and we need to make it constant. Thank you guys. Well, people are gathering together. I have to say, when I was asked to moderate this event, I said, no, I, I just want to hear a conversation between the two of you. And I want to just give you a brief chance to have that conversation and each ask each other one question that you would most like to hear the other answer. Well, we get to do that. I think you go first. Okay. <laughs> I'll think about it. You've always been so hopeful. Since I've met you, you, you always represent hope and you do it publicly and you also do it privately. 
Um, and I know we both, we both also have our moments of feeling that the um, obstacles for girls and women around the world are hard. In the really hard moments, where does your hope come from? I think there are a number of things that give me hope. Uh, I, I used to watch Bollywood films uh, when I was young. <laughs> and in, in those films, like they're usually for three hours. For me, that's fine. But if you say it to a person from the UK, that's just too long. Uh, but three hours is fine. And in those films, there would be a good life starting in the beginning, there would be a boy liking a girl and things would be going well and then the villain would come and just ruin everything but then the hero would go back and defeat the villain and things would be fine again and that was happy ending so i always believed in happy ending and that's how i used to look at my own story that even if things are harder whatever was happening in swat valley then how i went through the incident i was hoping for a happy ending in my story and I think that's something that has always given me hope that things will get better, things will go positive. And if you just look back at history, how things have gotten better, like for example, the, the rights of women to vote and suffrage, those things have improved. There's, we see, if we compare things, we see things have improved. We see um, more equality, not, not reached to the extent we want, but still we see progress. And I think that things give me hope that things will get better but also my family and the people who I am around who support me, uh, that just gives me hope. And I think it's just pointless to be hopeless because there's nothing that you can get. All you do is just harm yourself, is just disappoint yourself more, and you just achieve nothing. So it's good to be hopeful, it's good to be positive. At least you enjoy your present. Uh, and at least you enjoy some moments of your life. Uh, if you are hopeless, you waste your present, and you're kind of also wasting your future. Mm. Um, how do you see um, the role of mother, not just mother, but as father as well, because my father was not just father to me, but also mother. And I see my mother not just mother, but father. And I think it's just the idea of parenthood that is important. So how do you see yourself as mother, but also as father to your children? Well, I've thought a lot about this because you know, my, my children don't have a father anymore. Um, and I think, you know, as parents, we just want the best for our children. And... Sometimes I try to think, what would Dave say? What would he do? And sometimes I have the answer and sometimes I don't, and then I just try to do the best I can. I do think that we have to do a better job raising our boys and our girls to both be leaders and both be givers. From young, young ages, we tell little boys not to cry. Man up. We tell little girls not to lead, you're too bossy. And so these messages that give these stereotypical roles in these homes, which are really outdated in a lot of the world and should be outdated in the rest of the world, continue. And it's really amazing they do these studies. In the United States, by the age of 14, if a girl sees her father doing chores, washing dishes, doing laundry, doing housework with the mother, she has broader career ambitions than girls that don't. So no matter how often you say to your daughter, you can do anything, dear, she needs to see equality. And so I think that means that when our fathers are active fathers, when our mothers show leadership, and our fathers show leadership, and our mothers are active mothers, that starts to break down the stereotypes that I think are holding back the world because they're keeping men in power. We would love to take some audience questions now. Um, I know there are a lot of people here who have who've gone through hardship in some way, and if you do have a, a story that you want to share, um, you can go to optionb.org, and we build community around people exchanging experiences. Um, we want to keep the questions focused today on building resilience, on supporting women and girls. And in the US, we always like to remind people that questions end in a question mark. <laughs> um, here, we don't need to do that because in London, even statements end in a question mark. Uh, but if you have a question for Malala or Cheryl or both, uh, we would be thrilled to take it. 
Cheryl, this is a question for you. I am an avid reader of Lean In, and it has changed my mindset. And wanted to ask you, um, first of all, to say how sorry I am to have heard the news, and you seem to have been, I suppose in the last four years, I've seen a lot of uh, videos that you've, you've been in, and also in your recent BBC interview, talking about your life now as a single woman. Can you tell us a little bit more about how professionally you've managed to deal with not having a partner as a single lady? Because you used to talk in um, Lean In about how, as a strong woman, and you had your partner, and before that, um, your ex-husband, and how it was, in a way, a, a very important part of your life to have that person. How do you deal with it now? I'm so sorry to ask you a difficult question, but I'm interested to know. It's an important question. You know, when I wrote Lean In, I certainly wrote about and thought about different forms of family and talked about the poverty single mothers were living in. But I also wrote an entire chapter called Make Your Partner a Real Partner. And what I realized is that that title chapter had the same problem as the father-daughter dance does at my daughter's school that I cannot get rid of. There are kids without fathers. So do they have to call it that? Right? Why can't they call it the you know, daughter-friend dance or something so everyone could bring someone? And similarly, did I have to call my chapter, make your partner a real partner, which has this assumption that everyone has one. And I apologize publicly for it. I did a post uh, a year ago on Mother's Day. And what I realized again is that there are so many different forms of family, but particularly family struggling. Losing a spouse pushes a lot of women into really abject poverty all over the world. Some of the customs for widows around the world are truly horrific, absolutely horrific. But even in the most developed nations, losing a spouse pushes people into poverty as not having a spouse. And we just need to do better. And that's public policy, corporate policy, and the way we support each other, something I've thought about a lot and I thank you for asking me about. We're going upstairs. Good evening, and thank you for your inspiring stories. I have a question with a question mark, I promise. Um, you received great advice that, to remind yourself of what could be worse, but when you've lived through something directly or indirectly, um, how do you make sure you don't focus on everything that could go wrong? Children being alive, the family being together, um, and if you feel that anxiety, how do you make sure you don't share it with your family and you manage that? Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> you want to take that? Are you going to ask the second one or is that fine? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think uh, for me the most important thing is to accept who I am and to accept the present and uh, to... And, I, and as I said, I always try to stay positive and try to look at the, the good things in life, what I have. And after the attack, when I realized that I had lost hearing in my left ear, that I had uh, my facial nerve or the left side of my face was cut down and the movement of my left side of my face was affected. And then later on, I did surgery and it improved and uh, that I realized that it can never go perfect again. And I realized that the things I had lost, and I think it just reminded me of the things I had and the things I should be thankful for, for having a vision, to being able to hear, to being able to speak, and uh, to being able to be, to be thankful for what I have from things that I have personally in my body, but also to have family, to have friends, to be together with them, to enjoy each and every moment of my life. Hi, my question is for Cheryl about teaching kids resilience. I think sometimes as a parent, you have a desire to protect your kids and shield them from heartache, but you also, I think as a parent, have a responsibility to teach them to be resilient. So how do you find that balance? And um, yeah, how, do you have any advice oh, for that? We've studied this extensively. I'm gonna let Adam answer this question. We've, we've read a chapter about this in our book. <laughs> there's, there's a great book by uh, Julie lithcott Hames called How to Raise an Adult which is all about this. And it says, the first thing you have to do is normalize struggle. You cannot protect your children from all struggle, right? They will have challenges, whether they fail an exam or they you know, don't make the, the football team or you know, they forget their lines in a school play. 
And I think that you have to show them that that is okay, right? That's normal, that happens to you, and that means letting them see you struggle too. The other thing we found from the research on raising resilient kids is kids have to know that they matter. And mattering is just the belief that, that other people notice you, care about you, and rely on you. And I think as parents, I know as a parent, I, I know the first two pieces of that. They're really clear. You know, pay attention to your kids, right? Show that you love them, check. But we forget that kids also need to feel relied on and depended on, that other people count on them. And that's part of what signals to them, look, I have confidence in you, right? I believe you have strength. And so I think one thing that we can all do, those of us who have kids, is when you face a big challenge, you go to your kids and you ask them for advice. What would you do in this situation? And it teaches them that they're trusted to deal with it, and then it also lets them practice the coping skills that they're going to need once they do face hardship. Um, this is for Cheryl. Um, what has been one of your biggest challenges being COO of Facebook? Well, I just want to thank you for making my night and leaning in and asking a question. How old are you? How old are you? I'm 10. Yay! <laughs> wow. Well, I think we all look forward to what you're going to do. Um, the challenges have changed. I think the first and most important challenge when I showed up is um, trying to figure out how to scale the company and how to have a business model. So when I first showed up at Facebook, um, we were very good at connecting people and helping them share, but we weren't so good at making the money that would pay to connect people and help them share. And it turns out that for a business, that's an un unsustainable place to be. But we do that very well now often led by great women. Nicola Mendelssohn's here. Nicola, stand up. Nicola runs EMEA for Facebook, and she is incredible. <laughs> and so one of the ways I met that challenge is I just found fantastic people around the world to hire and gave them the opportunity to do what they do. If we have any other girls in the audience who want to demonstrate their executive leadership skills, now would be a great Now's your time. time. We'll take anyone, any Let's of those questions. Here. Hi, first of all, thank you so much for coming over to England and speaking. Um, my question is a bit explicit, but um, in the current global social climate, where the self-styled leader of the free world, the President of the United States, advocates grabbing women by the pussy, how can we look children in the eyes and say that sexual and psychological violence against women isn't legitimized? There's no place for violence against women and there's, there's no place of any kind. Unfortunately, violence against boys, girls, men, women has been uh, part of every culture. It remains part of every culture. There is against both genders, there is more against women. And it is uh, completely unacceptable. And we know that. And um, we know that as we think about how we raise our sons, how we raise our daughters, and how we make sure there's no tolerance for that behavior, you know, of any kind. I think people worry about what's happening to girls on college campuses. They should be worried about that. People worry about what happens to kids in families when they're on the street. And silence is the enemy of all of this. For, for many, many, literally hundreds of years, this stuff always happened and wasn't talked about. And we need to shine a bright spotlight on it and make sure we don't teach it and we don't tolerate it. Always. And, yeah. so I just want to add quickly, I think this is one of the reasons we need more women leaders. Um, the data are very clear across countries that when we have women in politics and leadership roles, um, we actually see more peace. And I think it's a, it's a travesty that I've done this for years with students. I've asked them to name who are the leaders that you admire most? Who are your role models? Over a thousand answers, only two women have been named. Um, and those two women are actually Malala and Cheryl. Over here. This is, oh, this is for Cheryl. Um, how did you help your children through the strong, through the hard times? How did I help my children be strong with hard times? Well, thank you guys for leading in and answer, asking a question. Um, well, when my kids, you know, we lost, they lost their father suddenly. My children were seven and ten. 
uh, which is something I never expected to happen. And uh, flying home to tell my children that their father was gone. There were a lot of very terrible moments in this whole thing, but that might have been the worst. And I remember Adam telling me that they were going to get through it, that they were. They were going to get through it. And they did. And they still miss him. I still miss him. But even my kids have grown from this horrific experience. I, again, I would take that growth away from them and give them back their father, but I can't. But in a sure sign of post-traumatic growth, my son's basketball team lost the playoffs. And all the other little boys were crying. And I looked at my son, and he looked fine. And I said, are you okay? And he rolled his eye, and he said, Mom, this is sixth grade basketball. <laughs> he said, I'm fine. And I was talking with these amazing uh, young men and women at Drive Forward, the hard things in our life, we would not choose them, but they make us stronger. My son has been through a lot, and he knows he can go through a lot. And I wouldn't wish that on any of us, but when the hard moments happen, finding the strength within us to get through them. And I hope for the two of you, nothing really bad happens, but if you don't do as well as you need to on a test or want to, or someone takes your seat in the lunch line, I hope those are the worst adversities you face. But I think even in those, you realize you get through it and you get stronger. We do. That's resilience. Cheryl, you talked about destroying stereotypes in, in, in a family setting, but let's face it, a lot of the people in charge of policy are coming in with a sexist mindset. How do we change their mindsets, which are so deeply ingrained so that we can get effective change now? We argue for the public policies we need. We get more women elected. Absolutely. So if you're sitting here and you think you might want to run for office, run. And if you're sitting here and you think you might not, run anyway if you're a woman. And those three young girls who asked a question, all three of you, for sure. But we need to get more women elected. We need to get more women running companies. When women run companies, those companies have better family-friendly policies. You know, when we experience loss, most people in the United States get very little leave, very little paid leave, and bereavement leave is something a lot of companies don't really focus on. After I lost Dave, we changed Facebook bereavement leave. It was pretty good before, it was 10 days, and now it's 20. And other companies are starting to follow suit. More women, I think, mourning more companies, and then making the case that how our society treats the people who need the more help, most help, how our companies treat our employees, how we treat each other makes us stronger. Make the case that this is not just the right thing to do, but the smart thing to do. And I think we're about time in terms of wrap-up. Uh, I do want to give you each a chance to give a final word, and there is this lovely family tradition um, in Cheryl's house of asking for a best, worst, and most grateful moment of the day, and it would be wonderful to hear each of yours. Um, I think worst I would say is that I'm just still thinking about my exams. <laughs> uh, still thinking about all the mistakes that I think I have made, and that I think I'm going to get D's and E grades. <laughs> Uh, she never gets those. No, I do. <laughs> and then this, I think the best thing is meeting you all, talking to you all, and then uh, sharing our feelings, sharing our thoughts, and, um, and I think just coming together, I think this is one of the best moments. And what was the third one? Great. Got it. Best words, yeah. grateful. Okay. Um, my best moment of the day is being here with the, just this unbelievable woman who, you know, is not just the youngest Nobel Peace Prize winner, but is a symbol of peace and hope for me and so many others around the world, and my dearest friend, Adam. My worst, we always say this, is my house is always the same, it's losing Dave. And I'm grateful for what I learned today from Martha and the unbelievable young men and women at Drive Forward. You taught me and showed me what resilience and collective resilience can look like today, and it's a lesson I will take with me for the rest of my life, so I'm grateful to you. In closing, I want to say first, thanks to Intelligence Squared for hosting an incredible event. We're grateful for that. Thank you.
Secondly, thanks to all of you in the audience for coming and giving us the chance to share today. We really appreciate that. And then finally, thanks to the two leaders I admire most for inspiring so many of us.